This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. The Americans with Disabilities Act has done a lot to make our country more accessible, although outdoor recreation hasn't always kept up. We'll explore how the ADA continues to shape access to the great outdoors. This is not a place you go on a separate trail if you have a disability. You are side by side with your family and friends, having the same experience. And we hear about sport climbing, which is about to have its moment in the Olympic spotlight. That and more, coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Over the weekend, a federal moratorium on evictions expired. The ban was meant to protect renters across the country from losing their housing during the pandemic. And it worked. Evictions have been at historically low levels in Colorado and other states over the past year. But now, with that protection gone, they are expected to spike. KUNC's Matt Bloom has been speaking with renters and landlords to understand what happens next. And he joins us now. Hi, Matt. Hey, Aaron. First, bring us up to speed on what the expiration of the CDC's moratorium means for renters here in Colorado. It's a huge shift because there's now a pathway to eviction that hasn't been there for almost a year now. This means we'll likely see a spike in evictions in the coming weeks locally. What's unclear, though, is how big that will be. We know from Census Bureau data that as many as 120,000 people in our state, or roughly 9% of renters, are behind on rent payments right now. That number has a lot of housing advocates on edge because, as we know, COVID cases are spiking in most communities. And our rental assistance programs in Colorado are backlogged. Of course, we know the moratorium just expired a few days ago. Have we started to see the number of evictions spike yet? What indicators do we have? So in the past few weeks, the number of landlords filing eviction cases has increased all over Colorado. In Boulder County, for example, the number is back up to the level it was around this time in 2019 already. I went to court in Boulder just to see what this looked like on the ground. That's where I met a renter, Mahima Pradhan. She's a single mom who lives in Longmont and works as a scheduler at a local hospital. Her job cut her hours over the winter, so she started making less and then started to burn through her savings just to pay for rent. That's when I started struggling with, you know, keeping up because I live like pretty much paycheck to paycheck. After that, I was just like diagnosed with a lot of health issues that... I didn't qualify for Medicaid back then, so I had to pay a lot of -of out-of-pocket fees and deductibles. So that's when I started falling behind on rent. Her landlord then took her to court, and because the moratorium expired, she didn't have a defense anymore. So she struck up a deal with her landlord to apply for emergency rental assistance and end her lease early to avoid getting an eviction on her record. So I have to be out by the end of, well, by Tuesday, which is fine because I had everything, you know, in place just in case, which I'm always... Everything in place as far as like needing to move or... Yeah, because, you know, I have, I luckily I do have family that, you know, I can move back with. Now Pradhan is just hoping that the rental assistance comes through so she can pay her debt back and keep the eviction off her record, which we know from research is important because they can be really devastating to your ability to get housing in the future. Colorado did receive more than $200 million for rental assistance programs from the American Rescue Plan. 
Do we know what the status of that funding is? And uh, do we know if it's been effective? We've distributed over $100 million of that so far, but the state currently has a backlog of over 4,000 applications. Another 6,000 applications are missing information, and the state says they need to be fixed. So there are a lot of people in limbo right now who are waiting for that money. Zach Newman is an attorney with the COVID-19 Eviction Defense Project, a local nonprofit. He says we're not moving through that backlog fast enough. It's a really frightening moment for us, for our tenants, for I think also a lot of landlords who don't know what to do next. And so, you know, I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen. It's uh, it's not a super optimistic scenario um, right now, at least. Governor Jared Polis did pass an executive order over the weekend that bans evictions for renters who can prove that they have a pending application. This new order gives tenants a 30-day window to get that application processed before a landlord can proceed with an eviction case. So you can kind of see how the idea is to keep folks housed who may just be sitting around waiting for their emergency aid. How are landlords feeling about all of this? They see this as uh, the start of a transition back to normal. Most landlords have been saying for a while now that we need to get rid of the moratorium because there's so much assistance available. The Colorado Apartment Association, the state's largest trade group for landlords, has been tracking collection rates among its members. Drew Hamrick, who is with the association, says they're seeing about 97 percent of their tenants paying on time right now. And now that the moratorium has expired, eviction rates will likely return to their pre-COVID levels. You'll see numbers like three or four thousand evictions per month filed. Uh, There may be a temporary spike, but it's nothing like the catastrophic levels that some are are using as a justification for more funding or for political advocacy. Um, And the reason we know that is precisely because the payment rates have remained so high. Evictions do take a couple months to process. So he says it'll be a while before we start seeing the actual number of evictions on the ground uh, get back to that level. Lastly, I just wanted to ask about how people go about finding information on rental assistance. Can you give us a sense of how the state has laid out that process? Yeah, it's gotten a lot more complex over the past few months because uh, the state has increased the number of providers of emergency rental assistance. So there's the Department of Local Affairs, which is the big state agency overseeing dispersal of a lot of the uh, federal stimulus dollars. But then there are local governments now and, and some nonprofits who are helping distribute the money. So the best thing to do is visit the Department of Local Affairs website where they have a phone line for folks who need help and a list of providers around the state. On a related note, a federal moratorium on foreclosures also expired over the weekend. So the state is in the process of setting up a similar assistance program for homeowners impacted by COVID-19. That's coming together a little more slowly, but application info is being posted on the state's website as well. Matt Bloom covers the economy for KUNC. Matt, thank you so much. You're welcome. The first week of the 2020 Olympics saw the introduction of several new sports, including skateboarding, surfing, and karate. Now that week two is officially underway, another event is making its debut in the summer games, sport climbing. 20 men and 20 women, representing 18 countries plus the Russian Olympic Committee, will compete in three different climbing events. 
two of the climbers representing Team USA are Colorado's own Brooke Rabutu of Boulder and Colin Duffy of Broomfield. John Branch is a Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times sports reporter from Colorado who has covered the sport for several years. Colorado Edition's Alana Schreiber reached him in Tokyo to talk more about climbing's Olympic debut. While this is the first year that climbing will be a part of the Olympic Games, many have been petitioning for the sport to be in the Olympics for years. How did climbing finally get on the agenda? You know, there's been competitive climbing in an international federation since the 90s, at least. And it just took a long push, not unlike what we saw with surfing and skateboarding. And really the three of them together, kind of coming from different parts of the sporting world, all of them coming from kind of a subset of the X Games, just kept pushing the Olympic movement to say, you guys need us. You know, we are popular. We're cool. We're youthful. And the Olympic Committee, as the Olympic Committee does, took its time with it. Finally, about five or six years ago, then, you know what, you guys are in. The three events that climbers will compete in are speed, lead, and bouldering. While many Coloradans certainly know the difference between the three, why don't you define them for us? Sure. Speed climbing is kind of the outlier, and that is basically you are racing vertically up a wall, up a course that has been set since the 90s. It's the exact same course, and it's really a specialty. Uh, A lot of the lead and boulder climbers had never done it before they had to qualify for the Olympics. Bouldering is the short wall that people know from most climbing gyms. It's uh, ropeless. There's a pad when you fall, and the athletes here at the Olympics will be given four bouldering problems to try to solve, and they will get points for making it to the top. And lead is more classic of the rock climbing genres. It's the one with the ropes and the carabiners. And the idea here is that it's a tall wall and you see basically how far you can get up the wall before either you slip or exhaustion takes over. And what do the athletes think about the structure of these events? A lot of the climbers don't love the format of squeezing the speed and lead and bouldering all into one thing, because most of them do one of those things very well, but nobody does all of them very well. But this has become a combination event, and it's just because it's the first time in the Olympics and the fork climbing world was given one medal, and so they squeezed it into almost like a triathlon type of event. So it'll be an interesting competition. Maybe the world's best boulders or the world's best lead climbers will not win medals simply because they also have to do speed. And the other thing that people are a little bit worried about here in Tokyo is they're doing it outside, and it is hot and steamy here. And with temperatures in the 90s and humidity up almost that high, and it's going to be really tricky climbing conditions, the kind of climbing conditions that most of these people would avoid at all costs in the real world. And so there could be a lot of slips and falls, which could lead to some upsets and could lead to some interesting champions and some interesting medalists. Unlike many other individual sports where athletes watch their competitors when they're waiting on the sidelines, in climbing, athletes will not be allowed to watch others before it's their turn to take the wall. Why is that? Yeah, it's kind of a fun quirk of climbing in that both in bouldering and in lead, the setup of the walls is kept a secret. And so the athletes will have a chance before they climb to come out and look at it, to try to analyze it and try to imagine how they're going to try to tackle this problem, what the route is that they're going to take up there. But you can't let them watch other people do it because that will be an advantage. It's part of what makes rock climbing unique in that you just have to show up and and mentally assess what do I need to do here and then start going and trying to do it. Of course, many Coloradans are excited about the Olympic debut of Brooke Rabutu and Colin Duffy. What can you tell us about them and what can we expect from these young up-and-comers? Brooke 
is the daughter of two world-class climbers. She seems prepared for this moment. And maybe it's a little early for her. I'm not sure if she'll make it to the medal stand, although she is rising in, in this world of climbing. Maybe she's three years away since now this is the 2021 Olympics. But she certainly has a chance. And, and Colin is, is the same way. They're, they're both young. They both, I think, have aspirations to reach the medal stand. I'm not sure how realistic they are, but it would not be a surprise if one of them sneaks up there with some of the other big names in climbing. You yourself are from Colorado, and you've written stories about climbing for a while. How have you seen the sport grow and change since you were growing up in Golden? It's a completely different thing. When I was a kid and a Boy Scout, we would go rappelling and, you know, a little bit of rock climbing. And that was very adventurous for kids. Nowadays, there are climbing gyms in every town. A lot of the climbers today start in climbing gyms and actually don't climb real rock until they're much older. Some of the athletes that will compete at the Olympics are not really rock climbers. They're gym climbers. This has become a very mainstream sport that a lot of kids are getting into from a very early age. And I think it's just exploding. As people there in Colorado know, you can't go very far without seeing a rock climbing gym. You can't go very far up into El Dorado Canyon or anywhere else around Boulder, for example, without seeing cars parked on the side, people doing rock. I mean, it's here. And I think the Olympics saw that and is trying its best to take advantage of the popularity of it. John Branch is a sports reporter for The New York Times covering climbing at the Tokyo Olympics. Thanks so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Summer here in the state is in full swing. And around all the hectic weather we've had lately, Coloradans have been flocking to their favorite places in nature. Through the pandemic, outdoor recreation has emerged as critically important to our state's economic recovery. State and national parks here are reporting record levels of visitors, and businesses that sell outdoor gear have gotten a shot in the arm, thanks to all the extra interest. And though the pandemic might have driven much of the recent interest, the outdoor recreation industry has been growing a lot over the past few years. A recent report from the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis shows the outdoor recreation economy in the U.S. is bigger than ever before, bigger than sectors like mining and agriculture. But as important as outdoor recreation is to the overall economy, not everyone is a part of this boom due to accessibility issues. These issues can make it difficult or sometimes impossible for people with certain disabilities to access recreation hotspots. But it's also more than that. Attitudes surrounding access and who should be able to be a part of outdoor recreation have limited what opportunities are actually available to people who have a disability. Since 1990, the Americans with Disabilities Act has sought to address these issues. The landmark civil rights legislation kicked off a new era of accessibility and has shaped the way our country looks, weaving accessibility standards into everything from sidewalks to door frames. But outdoor recreation was not an early focus of the ADA, and that's meant progress in this area has been a bit slow. In a few minutes, we'll head up to Park County to visit a camp that's been focused on accessibility in nature since the mid-1980s. But first, for more on the Americans with Disabilities Act and how it has shaped outdoor places in the last 31 years, we're joined by Emily Schumann, director of the Rocky Mountain ADA Center, one of 10 regional centers across the U.S. that provide information, guidance, and training on the ADA. Emily, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you so much for having me. Can you give us an idea across the Rocky Mountain region what accessibility looks like in general? We're sitting at about 20% of Coloradans have disabilities, somewhere between 20 and 21%, we think, which is about one in five people. That includes all kinds of disabilities. So everything from what we call obvious disabilities, things like being in a wheelchair or 
using some other sort of mobility device or perhaps using a seeing eye dog for, for a person who's blind, but then also invisible disabilities or non-obvious disabilities. So that would be the majority. Um, and so that could be, you know, really anything from cognitive disabilities, mental illnesses, lots of other types of conditions um, that wouldn't be obvious to the naked eye. And when we talk about, you know, accessibility within the region, all of those different types of disabilities are going to have different accessibility needs. So whether that's a physical barrier, a physical access barrier, like being able to get your wheelchair into a building, or um, it might be an attitudinal barrier that a person faces. So what kind of stereotypes um, are faced, do they face because of their disability, or what are the attitudes of other people toward them? So, you know, accessibility, is, it's a really broad topic, and it's kind of individualized, right? Every single person is going to need something a little bit different than the next person. How has our general view of accessibility changed since the ADA was signed into law? Hmm, that is a good question. You know, I think, you know, I think we used to view accessibility as, you know, simply removing those physical barriers, making sure that there are curb ramps and elevators and, you know, that people in wheelchairs can get around, you know, that there are accessible parking spaces, things like that. Now, when we talk about accessibility, we're talking about attitudes as well. And we're also talking about alternatives that are not always structural in nature. You know, we can provide accessibility sometimes without having to redesign a building or tear out a sidewalk. There's opportunities to innovate with accessibility, opportunities to find new ways of doing things. And often when we find new ways of doing things for people with disabilities, a lot of times that provides more opportunities and, and better access for, for non-disabled folks as well. So I would definitely say that we're shifting from, you know, a, such an intense focus on, on physical access to some of those more innovative approaches to accessibility. Well, how does the ADA, I guess, interact with things like hiking or trails or, or that kind of infrastructure, as opposed to, say, like new construction development or something like that? The ADA does contain some pretty specific regulations for those things. Physical spaces are governed by something called the 2010 ADA Standards for Accessible Design, which applies to, like what you were talking about, new constructions and major alterations of facilities. But the 2010 standards actually also contain a whole chapter on recreational facilities, including some of those outdoor recreation spaces. So the ADA does have some specific guidelines on, on the accessibility of those things. Also, you know, many of the outdoor recreation, you know, parks and trails, things like that are managed and owned by state and local governments, which would be covered under Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And under Title II, state and local governments have to provide what's called program access. If you see your state parks as a program, which um, that's how that would be defined under the ADA, then when viewed in their entirety, they have to be accessible for people to enjoy and benefit from that. Emily Schumann is the director of the Rocky Mountain ADA Center. Emily, thanks so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you. As we heard, we've come a long way since the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act, but there are still issues to overcome with attitudes and physical spaces. 
And while the list of places offering unfettered or even enhanced outdoor accessibility isn't long, it does include a hidden gem in the mountains near Kenosha Pass in Park County, Colorado, a 20-acre camp called Wilderness on Wheels, where folks have been working to address accessibility issues since the mid-1980s. When you pass through the front gate at WOW, you're greeted by a large wooden building called the Octagon that houses offices, a gift shop, and the apartment where the caretakers live, Beth and Justin Bellamy, and their four-year-old son, Jakai. We live here 24-7, what, nine months out of the year, and uh, take care of our 20-plus acre property here. There aren't many places that people can go and um, be outside in nature at their own pace, at their own speed, and um, just spend quiet time out here without any kind of adrenaline rush or without um, worrying about, do I need someone to help carry me um, over this rock? Will my wheelchair go through here? So um, this is just, it's a gem. The Bellamy's, who took over operations this past winter, are well-equipped to address challenges like these. Beth's background is in special education and Justin's is in geology, and their son often uses a wheelchair. So it was a natural fit. And science will prove, right, like the goodness of being in nature and all of that. But I also think what's really important here is it's about like inclusion. That's Allison Kessler. She's president of the Foundation for Wilderness on Wheels. So this is not a place like... You go on a separate trail if you have a disability. You are side by side with your family and friends, having the same experience. And that's the kind of consideration at the foundation of pretty much everything here, from campsites with elevated tent platforms to the camp's crown jewel, a mile-long boardwalk trail that makes its way up the mountain. And um, it's accessible for people with wheelchairs, walkers, scooters, whatever they might need to help them um, get up into nature. A lot of curves up the hike, you know, not just a steep, <laughs> steep uh, one one climb. But we see we see people getting a great workout. It's still it's yeah. still fun of a good workout For getting sure. up there. Yeah. Well, yeah. Should we get a little workout? Yeah. Or? yeah. Sure. <laughs> the trail was designed with access at the forefront, something that is important to Kessler, who got involved not long after she was paralyzed seven years ago. My paralysis was temporary, but I was in a wheelchair for seven months, and I was in the hospital that whole time looking at the mountains, wondering if I'm ever going to get back there. So when I got out, and I learned to walk again, and um, today I just walk with assistive AFOs, um, I knew I have job satisfaction. I work in tech, and that's really interesting in other ways, but I also wanted to get involved in this community. So. When you finally were able to go for the first time, what did that feel like for you to be able to get back at it? Yeah, emotional relief. I felt like myself again. Um, Just really, really grateful that a place like this exists, and I want to do everything I can to make sure it continues to. Beth, Allison, Jakai, and I hike over toward the fishing pond, where some visitors fish and others ponder their thoughts in the cool mountain air. I feel very safe letting my four-year-old take off and go on this boardwalk because it's just, it's safe. It's, yeah. um, it's accessible and it's safe. Hey, Jakai, come show Mr. Henry the pavilion down here. Watch where you're going, though. Don't crash. 
places like WOW are rare in part due to long-held negative perspectives towards people with disabilities in this country. It wasn't until 1990 that the U.S. effectively codified the rights of the country's largest minority group. And though that law provides guidance on making places like these more accessible, that wasn't always the case. Camping was not one of the biggies with the ADA. Barbara Kramer and her husband Bill were the caretakers of WOW for about 20 years before passing the torch to the Bellamy's. Barb's been using a wheelchair for more than 70 years after contracting polio at age 8, and she's seen attitudes towards accessibility change in her lifetime, in part because of her advocacy. Because it was so in my DNA to promote places and things for people with disabilities, it was the perfect place for Bill and I to end up. And though she wasn't there in the mid-1980s when Wilderness on Wheels started to take shape, she brought her experiences with outdoor recreation with her, informing what the place could become. Coming from a person with a disabilities perspective, I think that really helped us to get WOW growing more than it had been, you know, the first 15 years. Now, in its 35th year, Wilderness on Wheels has become a rare example of how to offer outdoor recreation experiences to all and how important that access to nature really is. Coming out of the pandemic, the Bellamy's and the board at WOW still have their work cut out for them. They're steadily opening up more and more of the camp for visitors, working on regular repairs with groups of volunteers, and of course, trying to make this place a little less rare. I'm hoping that we're here for 20 years, you know, and our son will grow up here and then be like, yeah, I grew up at Wilderness on Meals and, you know, and. He'll come back to visit us and we'll be old and <laughs> maybe he'll take over one day or something. But yeah, yeah it's, it's really great to be out here. That story was reported and produced by Henry Zimmerman. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 